0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thank you, May. Thank you for to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute for inviting me. Um, as May uh, has said in her kind remarks, uh, there were many threads I could have followed in presenting this book, and we 'll see the thread that I chose to to take um, and i 'm happy to divert uh, from from this narrative um, based on your interests and your questions and so i 'll try to leave as much time as possible for questions and answers. Um, This book comes out of uh, sort of uh, many intersections in my own personal biography, my academic journey, my academic career, which May has mentioned some of them. So I spent, uh, after my PhD at Berkeley, uh, I spent many years in Jordan teaching at Yarmouk University and setting up a department of anthropology there, which made me think and rethink that discipline. Uh, you know, the question was, why are we teaching anthropology in North Jordan? Why are these students studying anthropology in Jordan? How is this discipline relevant to them? And so I think I would mark sort of my first interest in knowledge production and thinking about location in relation to knowledge production to that experience at Yarmouk University. Um, but then um, my sort of trajectory went uh, in many directions. I worked in Cairo for Um, three years, and then um, um, came to the SSRC in 1999. This book and the project and what I will focus on is a product of my SSRC years, or one product out of my SSRC years, but it informs, to a large extent, my work, my current work at the Arab Council for Social Sciences. I haven't given a lot of space for that in my presentation, but I'm happy to Um, talk more about that Um, and um, I continue I should say that uh, I am at both places somehow so I myself am um, based in more than one location and manage to go between New York and Beirut quite often so in fact when I return from here I I go on to New York Um, so Uh, I will mainly focus on the book itself in today's presentation and its main arguments, but also contextualize it in terms of the broader research project and other outputs that have come out of this project. Um, So it was about 10 years of data collection, uh, workshops, uh, discussions, uh, conferences, and so on, which gave us a great deal of rich material to work with, and so as we planned the outputs, they each took sort of different directions. And I'll, I'll make that um, clear as we go on. I will also give some time at the end of my, of the presentation to some new features of and challenges to U.S. universities that were either not the focus of our project or were not so apparent yet. By the time we ended the project or the data collection and among these is the issue of the global and the global university this was just beginning to become a discussion around 2008 or or an important discussion around 2008 when the project actually formally ended the data collection part of it as you know writing takes much longer and then when you finish writing the actual book takes even longer to come out and so um, here we are celebrating sort of the, the product of, of a project that actually ended about 10 years ago in terms of um, data collection. So, I, I, will, um, I will talk a little bit at the end uh, about sort of new dynamics that are challenging the university structurally and intellectually today, which are not explored in great depth in this book, but this book might give us some ways of thinking about these new challenges. Um, So this is the book. Um, Mitchell Stevens at Stanford University is a sociologist who works on higher education. Cynthia Miller Idris is a sociologist who actually works on nationalism and right-wing movements, especially in Germany. And myself, I'm an anthropologist, so I could give a whole presentation on how this collaboration worked and where it didn't work and what happened and what didn't happen. Um, and it was not my first experience at co-authorship, but certainly my first experience in co-authoring a major piece of work. Um, And it was a true collaboration, um, but each of us um, complemented, actually, intellectually and methodologically, not just intellectually, but methodologically, we complemented each other quite well. So um, the project overall... Asked the question, "How does the university see its world?" Um, it, it would have been a more accurate title, but maybe not as um, as good to say "seeing the world of the university" rather than "the world as an object." So, how does it see its world? And one of the um, one of the ideas animating this book is a kind of historical perspective, which we could not delve into in great depth in, in, in the book itself, but we did in the project of how universities went from, not in a linear way necessarily, but went of thinking of themselves primarily as local institutions, answerable and uh, responding to their local communities, to national entities, to international and to global Uh, One piece of uh, trivia was that apparently students from New York who studied at Princeton in the 18th century were considered foreign students, for example. So universities were very much part of a local context, a very local community. So how does this transformation come about and how is this structural transformation or discursive transformation in the identity of the university linked to how the university actually organizes the study of the world beyond its walls. A second uh, question animating this project is why are area studies a useful lens for studying knowledge production? Um, I'll come to why we focus on area studies, but um, there was a great deal of skepticism when we first started this project as area studies already by the turn of the millennium were seen as kind of a passé way of organizing knowledge that had already been superseded by new frameworks and new paradigms, um, which may be the case for area studies as a a concept. Um, But we, we... and, and I'll come to this. We found it as a, a useful lens for studying knowledge production, not just about the international, but in general. Because area studies uh, gave us a very interesting way to think about how knowledge, how there's an accumulation of knowledge, how universities are a product of accretions as well as genealogies of intellectual Um, intellectual genealogies and have legacies for what follows. So uh, our idea here or our interest was to put area studies in a sort of longer durée narrative, Um, but also to think about area studies as a particular moment in knowledge production about the international. Um, We were challenged And when we started this project, to think about how to write the history of an interdiscipline. If you look at the literature on uh, intellectual history, it's mostly the story of disciplines and not the story of interdisciplines. So how do you write? How do you investigate the history of an interdiscipline? I think um, I may be <coughs> curious or strange, but I think that's a very interesting, actually, question. Uh, how do you bring together the pieces of what makes up an interdisciplinary field? And thirdly, uh, and this we came to this uh, issue through the research itself, uh, we found that area studies were actually innovated what we came to call not departments, or these units that populate university campuses that are not departments and that do not embody a discipline. And universities um, increasingly have more and more of these kinds of units that are not departments. And yet, this is our argument, the prestige of the university is tied to departments and not to not departments. And so what is this relationship between departments and not departments? So these are some of the sort of the the main ideas that we um, look at in this book. But uh, when we started this project, which um, has a prehistory and, and all of that, and really for me starts in 1999, Um, But then gets very much shaped by the events of 9-11 and the subsequent um, fallout from that in in every sort of aspect and and, and in many, many ways, including the attack on Middle East studies by um, certain public intellectuals, by members of of the U.S. government who accused Middle East studies of not having predicted the rise of uh, radical Islam. Um, echoing an earlier attack on Soviet studies for not having predicted the fall of the Berlin Wall and so on. So so this very much shaped uh, the questions we were asking and more importantly perhaps shaped the response of people as we went out to universities to interview um, area studies directors and associate directors and students and Uh, faculty and university administrators, the events of 9-11 were very much in in people's minds. So if you read the book, as you read the book, you need to think of that time. And and the way um, some of the emotion that actually comes through in the interviews is very much a result of uh, 9-11 and its aftermath for academia. Um, So the questions that we were asking at the turn of the millennium Uh, uh, revolved around three challenges that we saw were facing area studies, which I try to summarize by saying that area studies was caught between a rock and a hard place, between something called national needs and national demands uh, of of being relevant to certain kinds of uh, actors, national actors, and between intellectual trends that were... Um, construing or transforming disciplines and fields into transnational fields. So it was caught between these two sort of um, sets of, of dynamics and, and, and was trying to navigate these. Um, so uh, first of all, the first sort of set of challenges to, to area studies uh, were intellectual ones coming from globalization theories and from an insistence or a privileging <sighs> of territorial processes and circulations. Um, And for us, and this this is my bias, um, my intellectual bias, the question was how to study the global from a place rather than from no place. Because a great deal of this globalization literature sort of celebrated the no placeness of globalization or the lack of space or the deterritorialization. The end of geography was one book, the end of history was another book, all of which were um, sort of positing the global as a set of dynamics and relationships unmoored from place. So, this was an, uh, one important sort of um, challenge or uh, call to area studies scholars to rethink uh, the ways in which they, they did their work and they did their research. But also it was becoming increasingly clear at the turn of the century that the there was a sort of a disjuncture, if not an outright clash. Between area studies and disciplines, and especially certain social science disciplines, and I'll come back to why we chose sociology, anthropo- uh, sociology, political science, and economics. And um, some people have commented that if we chose other disciplines, this sort of divide may not appear as sort of severe as it does in 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 the data in in, in the books. And I'll come back in the book, and I'll come back to that. So the question was why do few scholars in economics, political science and sociology study world regions? And the third challenge to, uh, especially to Middle East studies, but as I said this had been foreshadowed already by Soviet studies, you know how to respond to national needs, especially given the amounts uh, of federal funding that was flowing into, into these fields and into the universities. So Just very quickly, the funding uh, for this research came from mainly the Department of Education through, uh, I should say, it wasn't a commissioned uh, study, through a competition that they ran and uh, from the Mellon Foundation and also some funding from the Ford Foundation. Um, We started out, the first phase of the project looked at Middle East Studies centers, Title VI centers as they're known, or National Resource Centers is another name they're known by. But then in the second phase, we expanded uh, to look at centers of Central Asian Studies, South Asian Studies, Eurasia slash Russia, Eastern Europe slash Eastern Europe um, uh, centers, partly because the Middle East centers were so fraught at the time, as I explained in that particular time, that the discussion it was difficult to know if the discussion was particular to issues faced by middle east studies or would they be faced also by other area studies uh, programs so this was one reason to expand the scope of the research but another reason is that these are all contiguous areas geographically and so we were interested in the second phase of the research to look at whether transregional transnational research was gaining traction in these centers, and how centers that were set up around a certain notion of region could transcend their own boundaries. So, this was the reason for the selection. At, at an early phase, we also did some interviews in Latin American centers as well, for example. So 12 uh, universities, all of them are one universities, research top tier universities. So that's another um, thing to keep in mind as you read this book. Um, there's a great deal of diversity in, in U.S. higher education, as you know. Um, more than 200 interviews, 30 focus groups, etc. About 10,000 pages of transcribed um, interview data. And so these two books... Uh, do not really, you know, and and there's a number of articles, but there's a lot more that can be done with this data if someone would fund us to have the time to sit and write. (laughs) So, um, (coughs) so, you know, we started out with a focus on area studies, which has been called the most notable academic innovation after 1945. Um, And... uh, you know, uh, no less than Immanuel Wallerstein saying the organizational consequences for the social sciences was immense um, although we cannot go into this uh schemata as we called it into this uh, history in any great depth in in this book, this is sort of the um, the framework that was uh, that was um, animating or that was um Um, helping us think through some of our main questions. So the study of the world in the U.S. at U.S. universities seems to have gone through three phases. But we call these not phases, but schemata, because although each new sort of um, scheme adds to the previous scheme, no scheme disappears completely. So what we see in today's campuses are accretions, again, of all of these phases of studying the world. So we still see units and departments and institutes and museums and labs and all sorts of uh, campus units that are animated by a civilizational notion of the world, which sees the world as civilizations, as exotic others, as... um, as a collectible, the world as collectible and as transportable, and to be brought to the US—not only the US, of course—but that's our topic—to uh, be brought through collections in, and housed in museums and and libraries, um, and and so on. So we we see these uh, continuing. Um, my favorite example is the University of Chicago, for example, which has the Oriental Institute and then it has a Near East Studies Department and then it has a Middle East Studies Center in addition to programs that work on the Middle East in law, in health, et cetera. Et cetera. So this is what we mean by accretions. Uh, the, the moment that we are particularly focusing on in, in this book is the national sort of moment when the U.S. uh, emerges as a superpower after World War II, where foundations and the federal government begins to invest heavily into uh, funding international work and international research. And here, the animating sort of framework is modernization theory. You can't really separate area studies from modernization theory. They, They were good for each other, basically. They framed each other, they formed each other. And here there's a sort of a dual focus. Uh, one, certainly one part of this is national security and the idea that the U.S. needs to know other parts of the world, uh, you know, its friends and its foes. And this is shaped by the Cold War and by the struggle over the Third World between the Soviet Union and the U.S. So there's a national security dimension, but there's also a development ni- dimension, a kind of virtuous modernity, that the U.S. is helping to bring to the rest of the world and a belief that this development is possible and and can be achieved and that knowledge and scholarship has a role to play in in this kind of development. So this is the area studies sort of moment. And then, you know, in in the 1990s and the 2000s and, and going forward, we have the global moment where one important issue here, or one important aspect of this, is that the patrons of the university become much more diverse. Uh, Universities are relying much less on federal funding and much more on private sector funding, uh, nationally as well as internationally. And so there's a pluralism, a polyvocality to the university that didn't exist um, before. And this is where we see the satellite campuses and and, uh, various sort of um, types of reaching out into the world, which I'll come back to, but also, you know, during the period of our research was when we saw all sorts of senior administrator positions being created, (coughs) deans of global programs, vice provost for global um, research, um, high-level university administration um, positions are are being created. And... um, as I said, we couldn't really go in depth into any one of these moments, except perhaps the area studies moment. Um, but the important point is they all exist at the same time. And so one of the metaphors which came out of um, one of our proje- one of our meetings was that the university is like a coral reef. Uh, it's, it sort of develops by... By deposits and and accretions and and so on and it's chaotic and yet it's beautiful, um, and and somehow it all works together and 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 yet you know it's not um, uh, it's not rational and it's it's not a rational sort of uh, organization. So two outputs which came out of this project and are quite different. The two books that May mentioned are quite different and and so. Um, I, I mention this because the potential in this kind of inquiry can lead you in many, many directions, all of which are very useful and interesting. So the book on Middle East Studies for the New Millennium really delved into one area studies field and and how it was dealing with the challenges that I mentioned and how um disciplines, but also new kinds of fields were um, forming and reformulating themselves. For example, there's a chapter on Islamic studies, which of course is not a new field, but emerges in, in the 2000s as a new field that builds on a previous kind of iteration of the study of Islam, but presents itself in quite different ways as Islamic studies. So, um, so these were the... So, and, and there's a chapter on geography and how geography starts to become interested in the Middle East as a discipline, which as a discipline, it begins to disappear from universities. By the way, geography departments were closing down at that period, but it also rediscovered a sort of new sense of place or looking at place in, in, in different ways. So this is um, sort of both... The book is both a kind of reflection on the past of Middle East studies, but also a reflection on, on changes and, um, and, and developments um, moving forward. This The current book that we're talking about is quite different. The current book really looks at the university and the structure of the university and, and is not so much about area studies except that it comes out of those initial questions. But what happened was At a certain point, as we were moving ahead in the project, we realized that we could make arguments about area studies or knowledge production or the international or national needs and so on, but without putting it in the context of what is the university and what kind of organization, what kind of institution is the university, we really couldn't make uh, sense of it in in the way we wanted. And this is actually when Mitchell Stevens joined the project. Um, Mitchell is an organizational sociologist who works on higher education and had never heard of area studies. This is an interesting true fact. So, when we brought him onto the project, he said, What is area studies? And he actually got so fascinated by area studies that he wrote a paper that he presented at the Sociology Association. And I said, Mitchell, you know, they're going to laugh at you. And he's like, No, they were really interested. They'd never heard of area studies which is a comment on sociology, as we'll, we'll come to in, in, in a minute. But also, you know, is really an indication of how, how we work in these silos. I mean, I couldn't imagine that there could be an audience of sociologists who hadn't heard of area studies. Whether they were engaged in it or not is a, is a, is a different thing. But, you know, he actually put together a, a PowerPoint presentation called What is Area Studies, um, which was met with a great deal of interest and, and you know, as this curious you know, object called area studies. Um, and so Mitchell brought a very, and, and ended up being the first author because this book really focuses on what is the university and how do we make sense of the changes that are taking place in the study of the international through looking at it as part of university structures and changing university organization. So two points that I'll highlight uh, from from this um from this interest of ours. One was this issue of departments and not departments, which became um, very central to our understanding of what was happening with area studies and the study of the international. And here, um, I should say that the literature on higher education is very sparse, a sociology of higher education. There's a lot of work in education, in the field of education, but very little in the social sciences that looks at higher education and I think This is telling that we do not like to study ourselves. Uh, We are happy studying almost anything in society, but not our own institution where we, you know, um, where we spent all our time. And so the literature is sparse but growing. um, And uh, we engaged a lot of, of the people who will be mentioned here. In, in our discussions, um, and notice that a lot of the research and, and writings tend to focus on departments, on disciplines, but not on these other units um, that shape the university and that sort of populate the campus. Um, and so we became interested in what are the limits of a theory of academic knowledge production that only looks at departments, only looks at disciplines as the sole legitimate a sort of type of knowledge production in the university. And we thought a lot about the, what does a NUT department bring to campus? It brings flexibility, it brings interdisciplinarity, it brings thematic focus. Uh, importantly, it can expand, contract, uh, be cancelled. Um, it, it's, it's precarious. Um, it's dependent often on outside funding, and, and this is another point I'll come back to. So um, um so it's longevity is subject to question and to redefinition but as um we um came to sort of uh, believe they play a very important role in you know and and there's a huge variety i mean between whatever institutes and centers and programs and networks and labs and so on. I mean, there's a huge variety and, and we're simplifying to a, to a large extent. But when we looked at eight of the universities that we were studying, we saw this huge increase in not departments in the last 50 years. And so we feel there is something there to be investigated. Um, importantly, the differences between departments and not departments are faculty lines. This is the main sort of difference and, and um, divergence, but also the differentiation and prestige, where departments have faculty lines and most not departments do not have faculty lines. They have faculty who belong in departments who might teach or do research or do all sorts of activities in not departments, but their appointment is in departments. So, a lot of the uh, a lot of the interviews, a lot of the quotes in the book are about how not departments try to influence departments in terms of their hiring. How they get them to agree to hire someone who works on the Middle East or works on South Asia in the case of uh, or migration or, or whatever. Um, and, and how those negotiations take place. They do not have faculty lines and usually they do not have PhD um, programs and PhD students. However, they teach, they, they, they may teach, they do activities, they, um, they do all sorts of activities which scaffold, if that's a good word, scaffold higher education, and scaffold especially graduate education. Undergraduate, but especially graduate education. Um, so, um, a lot of language courses are based in not departments. Uh, this is important because, as you may know, sort of the funding for language programs sort of ebbs and flows depending, again, because most of it is federal funding. There's very little other funding available for language training. And that ebbs and flows according to how the Department of Education or Congress, et cetera, decides um, to allocate its budgets. Another, so departments, not departments, was one major sort of uh, line of inquiry, The other was what uh, Cynthia, my my colleague, my co-author Cynthia, came to call Stone Soup, uh, which is how knowledge gets made through all sorts of uh, negotiations and collaborations and and working together uh, across um, a particular campus. And um, so how knowledge gets made in and across disciplines, through cooperation across campus, uh, relationships across campus, but at the same time is informed by disciplinary di- differences um, in norms between uh, different um, disciplines. Where Stone Soup, the idea of Stone Soup, came from was from one of our interviews where a head of a center said, You know, our work is like making Stone Soup. And those of you who know a folktale, a European folktale, about a group of people who were walking through a village and were very hungry and had no food, but were carrying a pot and they put water in the pot and they put a stone in the pot and they said to the villagers, we're going to make delicious stone soup, and but we need your help. And then someone brought carrots and someone brought potatoes and someone brought meat and someone brought this, someone brought that and in the end they had a the wonderful soup. So this is what in the interview Um, The person we were interviewing referenced, and and it became sort of, um, for us, a shorthand for the kinds of um, processes that take place in negotiations. And I don't know if at NYU Abu Dhabi this is at all uh, a fact of life, but… On any U.S. campus, you know, a center will give $500 and another department will give $1,000 and another unit will give 250 and another will give the space and another. And they all come together to make a lecture series possible, for example. So this kind of sharing of really tiny bits of money, I saw this firsthand at SSRC where sometimes we would be asked for like, can you, you know, Uh, Students we funded, for example, postdoc students uh, or postdoc researchers that we funded uh, write to us and say, you know, I'm going to uh, do a workshop on this topic that you funded me for, but I'm short, you know, $1,000 and then SSRC gives $1,000 and the thing happens. So it's with very small amounts of uh, money that... um, and, and so there is a real sociology of this uh, and an anthropology of this, of how these relationships and how these uh, negotiations are, are accomplished. And there was interesting um, quotes about certain centers that were very well funded um, as, uh, you know, there was a lot of negative comments about centers that were very well funded because they didn't play this game. They didn't need anyone else, and they didn't contribute to anyone else. So they were not players in this uh, stone soup sort of environment. So this is all about campus culture and campus life, which uh, we got sort of a view of um, through this research, which, again, I mean, do you know of any work sort of on on this sort of issue? I mean, very, very, very few. There's on students and student experiences of campus, but not so much on faculty and administrators and so on. And yet this is what creates the university and what creates the sort of the, the production in the university. Um, coming then, so these stone soup and not depart, departments, not departments are two sort of main chapters and two main ideas running through this book. Coming back to our original question of why few scholars in economics, political science and sociology study in the Middle East and other world, world regions, Um, A sympathetic reviewer of our book said that we had stacked the argument by looking at those disciplines. And if we had looked at history and anthropology and other sorts of fields, we might not have asked this question. But I'm not sure that's true, because all the way from film studies to history to uh, ethnic studies, even I have heard the comment over and over again that the focus is always on the U.S., um, and the study of any other world region is always secondary. Uh, it may be valued, but it's not seen as central to the field or the discipline. We can talk more about this um, if if you're interested. So, is it different in other disciplines Is is a good question, which we didn't investigate. And is it different in other academic traditions? Is European sociology also focused on Europe? Is, you know, French... Uh, Political science focused only on France. Um, these are questions which uh, we do not have direct answers to, although we have our suspicions and our ideas. And, and I should say that um, in the book, uh, rereading it for this talk, I thought we, we come across a bit accusatory in that way. Um, I mean, these are national disciplines sociology, economics, and political science are nation building, state building disciplines in their inception. And so, why we expect them to be international or global is is a good question. We may think, or we, the three authors may think it's it's a good thing, and it's a valuable thing for these disciplines to be international or global, but um, no one no one asked us really, and um, there's a long history for why they are national nationally focused, and as opposed to anthropology, for example, my discipline, which made its Um, history through studying the other, but then not studying the us. You know, the us was always implicit in anthropology. And actually anthropologists who want to study the West or study their own or study uh, the U.S. are always under suspicion as not being real anthropologists for not having gone to an exotic location and so on. So there's a lot here that, um, um, that, that can be discussed. But interestingly, in the interviews, the reasoning that came through when you asked people, like, why um, very few economists, political scientists, sociologists study the other, always came down to a competition between computational skills, statistical skills, and language skills. That these were seen as incompatible. You couldn't have both. You couldn't have world languages or even a second language, one second language, and have the requisite, sort of. I put this, or I'll I'll bracket this as, as not being true, I think, but a very compelling argument that was presented over and over again. From the point of view of the area studies people, there was a bitterness. As in this quote, you don't make a career being a Syria specialist. You make a career being a political scientist who maybe at one point in their life has been to Syria. Um, So that was the view from uh, sort of uh, area studies. I think I'll skip that. From area studies, again, there was an epistemological, it it was posited that there was actually an epistemological um, difference between how area studies scholars worked and thought about theory and methodology and disciplinary Um, scholars thought about methodologies as unmoored in time and place Um, and then if we look at you know quotes from um, from chairs of departments of sociology economics and so on we do hear this very clearly coming through the data You know, a chair of the Department of Sociology says if somebody went and studied education in Vietnam and came to present it at the American Sociological Association, it would be an eyesore, which I find really interesting. Why an eyesore? You know, why a visual thing? I don't know. But so that's one quote from political science. The technical requirements of the discipline means that a student is caught between trying to take fourth year Chinese and third year statistics and and so is caught in this bind. Um, And it's getting worse and worse as the discipline of political science gets teched up. And economics uh, says we couldn't really encourage someone to go out and learn another language because they wouldn't get any credit for it in the economics marketplace. So these are, I mean, these are selected quotes, but it just goes through our data. And then the argument is that you don't find good jobs if you are not sort of thoroughly in the discipline. And in this quote, um, the person sort of says tongue-in-cheek, why don't you just study U.S. society, which is really what we are all interested in. Um, And that you can't get tenure if you're busy trying to learn another language or study another part of the world. So a lot of the arguments from um, from these departments were, If you want to study another part of the world, you better come already equipped with the language and the skills and the knowledge of that other part of the world, because you can't acquire it while you're studying the discipline at the same time. Okay, this is sort of the main ideas animating the book. Um, And I want to depart a little bit from the book and pose a series of questions. So... Clearly, many people make good careers out of being serious specialists, especially today. So what's, what's going on? If this is not valued in the social science um, departments of universities, where is it valued? And here, this brings a very important point that the university is no longer the sole actor or even maybe a main actor in knowledge production. There's a very complex ecosystem of knowledge production institutions now We have think tanks and all sorts of broker organizations that uh, are in between um, universities and other types of institutions. We have the professional schools in universities themselves who are acquiring departments of social science within them. So you have a school of education, for example, which has its own department of social science. So you have... a a school of uh, law that begins to create its own area studies departments. So you have these units on campus sort of um, uh, tailoring uh, those disciplines, social sciences, that's what we are interested in, social sciences to their own requirements um, in ways that they consider bridge theory and practice that are problem solving and hence useful in the world. And then we have out there, and especially coming from Lebanon, uh, we see this all around us the development industry and the humanitarian industry, I'm calling them industries. I mean, um, these complex sets of um, institutions, international NGOs, local NGOs, and so on, who are all producing knowledge and knowledge that uh, theoretically has impact or has a greater ability to impact change than academic knowledge. And we have the media, of course, uh, in all its forms, uh, blogs uh, onwards, uh, which um, um, creates a cacophony of, no- of voices, not noises, of vo- voices that are commenting on and speaking to any particular issue. So the university is really one among a whole complex set of um, individuals and institutions that are producing knowledge and And so it finds itself, I think, uh, you can tell me if you agree, it finds itself somewhat on the defensive when people are talking about impact, when they're talking about problem solving, when they're talking about, um, you know, what's really going on, et cetera, sort of academic knowledge tends not to be valued as much as other types of knowledge by powerful actors and funders. Um, So you have a situation where, the disciplines are getting more and more, perhaps, inward-looking, at least some disciplines, and a world where academic knowledge is, is uh, in serious competition with other, um, with other actors. So, uh, so here we come to these issues, as I said, we're not dealt with in the book, but you know, face us today when we think about what is a university. The university is contested uh, in so many ways, and I'm just signaling here in, in, in a very uh, rapid way issues of uh, governance and the role of faculty in governance, the issue of academic freedom versus accountability to donors and trustees and all sorts of powerful actors who, who fund the university, um, all these issues around students and the kind of campus that they want and the campus as a safe space, etc. Um, The university is also somewhat becoming or there are attempts to circumscribe the university to make it um, a place that provides education only for marketable skills, which is in itself identified or defined in certain ways. The corporatization of the university, the issue of labor on campus, the increasing adjunctification of higher education, all of these things are changing the university. So in many ways, the university that, it's not that we had an ideal type university in mind, it's it's also our interlocutors when they were talking about the university and how the university works and how the university does, had an ideal type and this ideal type um, no longer exists if it ever did. The university is also fragmenting. I'm just talking about in, within a campus now, there's sort of autonomous rent-seeking units on campus centers and, and, and so on that fundraise and that, uh, whose existence depends on their ability to attract funds to the campus. Um, we have part campuses, as, as you know, especially in this part of, the, of the, not only, but you know, since we're here in this part of the world, which are sections of campuses that are transported made modular, um, satellite campuses, etc. So, um, one of uh, one useful way, I think, or useful for me, is to think about the university now as a global assemblage. Um, Saskia Sassen wasn't talking about the university when she defined global assemblage, but I find it um, useful to, to think of the university as denationalized strategic territorialization. So... Uh, what is this process of the university sort of expanding, creating new territories for itself, geographically, but also um, intellectually. Because um, intellectually also, we talked about globalization as as being sort of a frame or a paradigm or a way of um, organizing knowledge that's very important. Well, this has also... <coughs> Intellectually, there's been a great deal of uh, uh, thinking and rethinking, and attempts to decenter knowledge, to deterritorialize knowledge, to decolonize knowledge. Um, I don't think we have much time to go into into all of these very thorny and and um, interesting um, issues, but um, I think these are all serious challenges, but I wouldn't like to just call them challenges. They are also ways of remaking knowledge that are really important, that are going to need structural reflections of themselves on campus. Um, And this is really a a main point of our book, is that you cannot think only as intellectual historians often do or or people writing the history of of, uh, a movement or an idea or a discipline, etc., only think about figures, you know, the individuals who made those fields and their writings and, and their intellectual legacies. You have to think about the structural um, underpinnings and infrastructures for those kinds of intellectual developments. Uh, the two go together and the two are related to each other in very complex sorts of ways. So if, if we do decolonize the curriculum, which I personally... Um, you know, stand for. Uh, how how do we? You know, how is this going to be reflected in curriculum and training and units on on campus, on departments, and and so on. Um, I'll just. Um, I'll just end with a little bit of um, which I really added after talking to May <laughs> earlier today about one project which sort of came out at the SSRC, which kind of came out of all of this thinking and, and research and writing, which is the InterAsia project, which I helped develop with certain colleagues which really tried to respond to, you know, what comes after area studies and how do we not lose the rich historical, contextual, cultural knowledge that area studies produce while recognizing that the world is a different place and, and, um, uh, and so knowledge needs to be organized in a different uh, way. And so the interasia project at the SSRC, which is also around, t- which started around 2008, just as this research project ended, um, is an instance of how one can organize knowledge in a different way to, uh, at least challenge, if not to decolonize and, and, and de-center and do all of these ambitious aims, at least to shake up the ways in which knowledge about the world is, is being produced. Um, and not just at U.S. universities, but here the importance of partnerships and of, of universities working together across geographies becomes very important. So this project has the following partners – who all work together, who all contribute financially to the project, who all host the activities of the project. And um, and this InterAsia project came out of various sort of experiences at the SSRC, including this project, Producing Knowledge on World Regions project, um, and has different kinds of activities and modalities from conferences to working groups to postdoc um junior faculty fellowships, and um, and these grants and fellowships are organized in different ways that enable people to be mobile, to affiliate with the hubs or the various partners, and produce not only research results, but also pedagogical resources for teaching and, and changing the curriculum. An inter-Asia academy, a sort of summer academy or winter academy for training a new generation of, of scholars in this kind of um, uh, trans-regional, transnational ways of uh, doing research. And an exhibition, which we haven't yet done, which is in the plans for the next two years, because so much of the work, it was very interesting. We've um, SSRC has given out 82 postdoc fellowships or junior faculty fellowships. So that's quite a, in addition to the hundreds of people who have been at the conferences and so on. And we see how visuality is central to trying to um, communicate this idea of fluid circulations and mobilizations that words on paper don't do it by themselves. They are still necessary, I think, but some kind of visual approach to these issues is also necessary. So a lot of our fellows and grantees and and conference participants are working with visual materials. Um, And... Since we are here, I'll tell you, it all started, this project, with the first conference, which was held in Dubai in 2008, and since then has moved around um, Asia, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, Istanbul, Seoul, Hanoi. Perhaps it's time to come back um, to this region. And this was the poster in Dubai in 2008. Um, So this is just one example of how we begin to kind of reframe, not only reframe intellectually, but restructure the way in which opportunities for research and opportunities for knowledge production are extended to new generations of scholars. And here, I, I just want to say that one of the problems of area studies, for example, so I should not be understood here, or this book should not be understood as a defense of area studies as they were formulated at a particular time, Uh, the whole structure of area studies and the way the funding came to area studies and from area studies to students mitigated against this kind of research. Because, for example, if you wanted to get a fellowship to learn a foreign language, you could not do Turkish and Urdu at the same time because Urdu was in the South Asia center and Turkish was in the Middle East center and you couldn't get funding from two different centers. Or if you wanted to do research in Uzbekistan and in... Um, Japan, because you were interested in certain connections, you couldn't get travel funds from, you know, the Central Asia or Eurasia Center and the East Asia Center. So the way the world regions were, the world was divided up into regions through very concrete practices and flows of funds mitigated against these kinds of uh, research. And so the challenge for us, because the university and the campus is a result of accretions, So these centers continue, um, as while global study centers and other new types of units are being created, um, is is how, especially at a time of decreasing funding for higher education, which is a a reality uh, in the US, um, how do we restructure the flows of resources and knowledge to enable um, knowledge that is um, truly global. Thank you.